Imagine a utility with half a million customers. If you have one value that describes the reliability experience of your average customer, that likely means that there are many customers that are much better on one side of the curve and a lot of customers that are pretty worse in other side of the curve. And so there has been recognition of that and a desire to start thinking, especially insofar the customers that are worse off tend to overlap heavily with customers that are more disadvantaged and that might be low income. That means that we have an equity issue here. And we won't really understand or measure that equity issue until we start looking at you know, much more granular ways to measure the performance of the system. Welcome to the Energy Nerd Show, powered by Synapse Energy Economics and Climbable.org. Energy Nerd Show. So hey, uh, Jeannie. Yeah, bro. Who's our guest on the show today? Today we have JP Carvalho from LBNL. Hi, JP. Hey, JP. Hey, Jeannie. Hey, Bruce. How's it going? Good. Good. Good to see you again. What do we want to talk about today on the Energy Nerd Show? I thought about modern art. Um, you know, we can start with that since I have some in my background. This one right behind me that I'm that I'm covering is my kids' more recent work. Actually, there's several kids. They made this in and they auctioned these uh, frame things for fundraising. So I think my kids is the one towards down the left, the blue one. Nice. The other ones, I don't care as much, but uh, they're all good, good little guys and girls. Do your kids watch the show? My five-year-old grandson watches, so he was not impressed. That's possible. Uh, if we include some Minecraft element, my kid will be excited. So um, we want to maybe talk about Minecraft energy use, a data center use for Minecraft support or something. Put a power plant in your Minecraft city. <laughs> exactly, exactly. How you build, what kind of plant you build and how make sure it's renewable and resource adequacy is uh, achieved and everything. JP, could you tell us a little bit about what Lawrence Berkeley National Labs does? Lawrence Berkeley National Lab is one of... Well, I think are 13 national labs that are DOE sponsored and funded. They're independent entities that largely comprise the research and development arm of the Department of Energy. And these labs are spread out throughout the country. And each one of them has a sort of a certain focus. For example, the National Renewable Energy Lab, NREL, based in Colorado, it's pretty obvious based on its name. It was one of the most recent labs created, I think, in the 70s or 80s with a specific focus on renewable resources. Some of these labs are typically co-located with universities. And that's the case of Lawrence Berkeley, which was built behind the campus of UC Berkeley. And it's almost 100 years old. It started with a strong focus on physics, a lot of nuclear work back in the 1910s and 20s. And now has evolved into a multidiscipline lab with still a fair amount of focus on physics and basic sciences, a lot of computation, but also um, a big branch of earth science work and a small group where I belong, what's called the Energy Markets and Policy Department, where we take some of these basic science advances and we kind of put them in the context of policy and institutions. And so we try to assist decision makers in the private and public space to make sense of the new technologies and to understand what other institutions aspects are needed to be adjusted to make the most out of these technologies. So what do you work on at Lawrence Berkeley Lab? At Lawrence Berkeley, I'm a research scientist. I've been with the lab for about 10 years, started with just a part-time gig, focused on two things, integrated resource planning and the energy service company industry, the ESCOs. They were very dissimilar, but they just had a need on those two elements. And it it happened that I had worked in an ESCO in in the past and that I was doing a chunk of my PhD work on, on planning. 
And so it felt like a good complement or fit. And in particular, I was attracted because the work I was doing on planning was largely the modeling side, sort of what I think of the fun side. But they were offering to work on the more regulatory aspects, sort of the process of integrated resource planning and how the plans are made, how they can be improved, et cetera. And so that led to, you know, now a decade long relationship with planning, as I always think being the core of my expertise and interests. And when you're a planner, there's a few things that happen. You start thinking in long term. So I always think forward and in sort of years or you know, a couple of decades. So I, I work in that sort of realm. And in this particular time in our existence, it is quite interesting because we're thinking about this energy transition. So we're thinking about a massive overhaul of our energy system and in particular the power system with very ambitious target set by the current administration to fully decarbonize the grid by 2035. So I feel that it's the right time to have a planning sort of hat on. At the same time, being a, a, someone that looks a lot into planning, it forces me, or I always thought of, uh, requires that I have a, a fair amount of knowledge about a lot of the things that happen in power systems, like on the load side, forecasting load, understanding how to characterize it, uh, on the supply side, understanding the types of technologies that are coming online, uh, how we decommission different types of technologies, all the grid that connects everything, and even more so these days, thinking about the distribution system as well as the transmission system as a single thing rather than the typical divide that we have done. So being more integrated in the, in the way we think about planning and the outputs of the planning process and then adding a whole layer on how difficult it is to do this when you're in a vertical integrated utility and you have roles and processes that are separated to different entities like ISOs and RTOs and distribution systems, owners and, and, and retailers in some cases. And I try to stay right in between the technical and the institutional, understanding that both inform each other. And so most of my work falls there and I do a bunch of work, you know, thinking about aspects related to the pathways that we have to move forward in this energy transition. And in particular, the resilience and reliability aspects of this is how do we do this without breaking down the grid and even more, how can we do this sustainability improvement by making customers better off in many ways? Are you able to zoom out and think about how things are happening at the scale of the nation and then also tell us a little bit about how the planning is happening to meet that 2035 goal is it utility by utility or at some different scale yeah that's a great question that it's very idiosyncratic to the way the u.s is laid out and over time in particular with the energy policy act of 2005 it's been very clear that the prerogative for planning lies on the states. But at the same time, you have FERC as a regulator that makes sure that between states, there is enough transmission and there are the right conditions for you know, market transactions that are not discriminatory in any way. And so there are many layers to developing nationwide planning that, as you say, involve utilities in some cases, involve in part ISOs and RTOs in others. In some cases, there can be transparent and available to the public. In others, it happens in boardrooms inside merchant owners who are planning their own deployment of resources. In many jurisdictions, they have ISOs and RTOs where they, you know, in organized markets, they really plan their deployment on a private space. And we just see their queue requests and interconnection requests as an expression of what's going on inside those private sort of spaces. And I think that's probably by far the biggest challenge of moving an entire nation towards a certain objective when the planning processes are so segmented and diverse. 
And so in many ways, what has to happen is that hopefully certain states lead the way and start proving that they can do it and there is benefits. And it is indeed beneficial to customers in particular, but also for the range of stakeholders. And uh, hopefully other states start going up. And with the help of these multi-regional organizations that sometimes host states that are more engaged than others in terms of a transition, they kind of bring everyone together. And I like to think that rather than the states that are slower in moving, slowing the whole process, they get sort of pumped up by the other ones and everyone starts moving in that direction. And you mentioned reliability and analysis of reliability and providing a reliable system going forward as a key challenge. And and that really is kind of a, I mean, there's customer by customer, you know, distribution system reliability issues, but a lot of that reliability is, is very broad, you know, bigger than a state, right? Multi-state challenges, I think. Ultimately, as much as we like to draw boundaries in states and cities and um, utilities, the system is interconnected with few exceptions. The entire U.S. is really a big machine, and that's how the National Academy of Sciences has sort of declared the, the U.S. power system as the biggest machine ever invented. And so with that, you could feasibly think that an event happening in one side of the system might have repercussions elsewhere. And that's typically what happens. And so part of the challenge with reliability and resilience is what is the right place to measure it. So the two typical places that we have chose to measure it is the distribution system as a big unit. Typically at a utility level, we try to understand how is that particular big system performing. Now that masks a lot of what really what's really going on inside that utility. Imagine a utility with half a million customers. If you have one value that describes the reliability experience of your average customer, that likely means that there are many customers that are much better on one side of the curve and a lot of customers that are pretty worse in other side of the curve. And so uh, there has been recognition of that and a desire to start thinking, especially insofar the customers that are worse off tend to overlap heavily with customers that are more disadvantaged and that might be low income. That means that we have an equity issue here. And we won't really understand or measure that equity issue until we start looking at you know, much more granular ways to measure the performance of the system. And for utilities, it's challenging. It's much easier to do a single large measurement. And perhaps in some cases where you have a big metro area that's heavily underground, you know that the reliability of that area is generally good. So that brings up your averages very easily. And when you have to deal with the rural customers that are really at the far end of a circuit, those are way more challenging. And you can see how munis and cops that serve in many cases, majority of customers that are in those conditions that are more rural, they are coming up with really creative ways that entail deploying you know, storage units close to a village because the, the, the mountain pass that they have to go through, their feeder goes through, it's generally snowed and inaccessible in the winter. And so they do some local things that other quote unquote traditional utilities might not do. And so there's very interesting stuff happening in terms of improving the customer experience and, and seeing the customer as the objective of your reliability efforts and not just the system. Uh, on the bulk power system, what we worry about is that even though it has been pretty reliable over time, it always has the risk of being a one-off event that really has widespread effects. Because if something wrong happens at the transmission level, as we have seen more recently in the case of Texas or with Winterstorm Uri or in the PJM area with Winterstorm Elliot, a big amount of customers might be affected by a single event. And so that is prompting a lot of work on understanding how exactly these failures happen, how correlated they are, how likely is that a lot of this, a, a big amount of generation units or certain transmission lines all go out at the same time. 
we typically have assumed that they have independent failure rates. But the truth is that when you have a big event, they all become suddenly correlated. And you can have what's called a common mode failure. So we're trying to improve the models that we use to assess reliability. So the results that we get in those models start looking much more like what we're seeing in reality. And then the types of investments, the location of those, and the types of technologies, and the scale of those investments that we need to keep the bulk power system at certain levels of reliability are consistent with what we need in reality. So traditional kind of system reliability models might look at the daily peaks or you know kind of our peak loads, and then separately assume that all the power plants have forced outage rates five or ten percent, you know, independently occurring from each other. And then the whole randomized calculation is done, and we say, oh yeah, with this reserves, the system will meet a one day and ten year loss of load expectation standard or something. You know, I mean, and that that was for decades. That's how. Um, system planners were doing it. And can you describe more, what are the improvements or what, what are people doing now or what are system planners thinking about doing in terms of tools and methods? That's a good question. I've seen very interesting developments over the last five years, especially as some utilities uh, that are subject to RPSs, as they meet those targets, they are starting to have larger chunks of solar and wind generation on their fleets. And generally that translates that in certain hours of the year, the proportion of energy coming from those renewable resources is pretty high, can be 50, 60%. So they're starting to get, okay, we need to get a handle of what could happen here. What's interesting is that they had the same motivation before. It's just that we were under the illusion that these dispatchable fossil fuel plants were much more reliable, but the truth is that they were equally unreliable if they were not winterized and if those cobalt mount failures were not identified, etc. Now, in some way, the renewable revolution is prompting these reviews, which would have done you know decades ago. But... The point is that some of the key changes that are starting to occur is that we're stopping to think about this peak hour and just, and just planning the entire system for the peak hour. And we're realizing that a, a shortfall can happen in, and there's many other hours in the year that are stressful for the system that are not necessarily the peak. Because in the peak hour, you may have still very a lot of certainty that certain resources are going to show up. But there are non-peak hours where you are much more uncertain exactly what can happen. The sort of state of the art right now is to simulate all 8,760 hours of the year and, and, and understand what is the balance between supply and demand on each one of those hours and running those hours with, as you said earlier, sort of a random set of inputs so I can get, okay, how likely it is that something wrong may happen. And we might find out that if we simulate each hour a thousand times, we realize that maybe in two of those hours, we have a, a supply problem. We, we, we have less supply than demand and we might have a shortfall. But you know that is that is a 0.2%, which is reasonable. And so we, we move forward and say, okay, this two out of a thousand is pretty good. We can still work with the system in that way. The other element that's starting to come in is a much better representation of weather and weather sensitivity. This is a little bit of a frontier practice in that we would like that all the simulations have a, a set of weather files that are consistent across all the inputs. And so we have load that is sensitive to weather, which has been the typical practice, but we also have distributed resources that are sensitive to weather, variable renewable resources that are sensitive to weather, transmission failures that are sensitive to weather, fossil fuel generators whose failure rates are also sensitive and dependent on weather. And so we have this big granular weather sort of database informing all the different inputs that go into my system. And so that way I can reflect much better the actual performance of a system given certain weather. And when I have that, then starting to fit in forward-looking climate change-driven weather patterns becomes a reality. It's just a matter of going outside, 
looking for the right tool to create, you know, how is my weather going to be in 10 years or 20 years if climate change keeps evolving the way it's going? And then I plug that into my system and say, okay, how's my system going to do in 20 years with these new weather patterns that might include shifts in rainfall patterns, shifts in snowfall patterns, shifts in temperature, et cetera. The final piece that's quite interesting and where we do a lot of work on is that all that we have talked about doesn't have any economics on it. It's just purely technical. And the way we have done this in planning is that we just have chosen almost tacitly a certain level of technical performance of the system. We, we say we want the system to fail at most a day every 10 years, or we want the system to have a 5% chance of, you know, when I was saying this two out of a thousand, we want the system to have at most 50 out of a thousand of those simulations with shortfalls. And, and we're fine with that. We're moving into the possibility of make this an economic decision. So rather than just choosing what we think is a societal uh, value for how reliable we want the system to be, we can attach a value to the loss of load and potentially eventually get to the point where we decide what each customer is willing to pay to have certain levels of reliability. And we're, we're far from being there, but you can think of a case where a customer might choose a reliability level and you're like, okay, do you want to pay a premium and have, instead of a 5% chance of shortfall, uh, have a, maybe a 2% chance of shortfall, which translates into this amount of hours and expectation. And maybe some customers that have medical devices or that have you know high needs of power in their homes, they might choose that. And actually, that's what's happening. We have a lot of customers installing behind-the-meter battery storage because their reliability is much higher. And that behind-the-meter storage brings your reliability levels much higher. I mean, you, 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 know, you get, I don't, I don't know exactly how much, but it can be an order of magnitude improvement. So we see it happening from a private perspective, but I think it will be nice to get this out and put it as part of the planning process. I have a question about that. So earlier you mentioned equity, and I imagine some of the equity problems can be solved simply with money, like putting a battery near a load center that needs it. In a smaller system like a muni or co-op, maybe that's doable. But in this bigger planning sense and thinking about the economics, how do you include equity concerns in the planning decisions? Yeah, that's a great question. I am aware of a number of recent efforts in different national labs within the DOE national lab ecosystem, including Lawrence Berkeley, aiming at defining something like an equity-driven planning framework. So how, how does the planning change when I have some equity constraints built? And that can be translated into something as concrete as a model constraint, where the model has to achieve certain, say, you know, I want that the siding of plants is more or less equitably distributed. So I don't find my, my, my power plants, even if they're renewable, just installed close to people that are low income. I want them to be spread out. So that's fair. I want transmission lines to be built equally so they don't affect, or maybe I don't want transmission lines to affect any person. So I have a constraint on the way the transmission paths have to be built. So there is that aspect, but there are a lot of outcome-based aspects as well that regulators are starting to pursue in terms of, for example, ensuring that the energy burden of customers is at a certain, up to a certain level. So essentially the amount of money that they spend as a proportion of their income is limited to a certain or capped to a certain level. And then there are, you know, affordability considerations that they can build in. So it's a very nascent and very interesting concept. I don't think we know yet how we would build equity considerations in, in the types of planning processes that we have been talking so far, like integrated resource planning or distribution system planning. But there's definitely going to be interesting changes over the next, you know, five to 10 years in terms of um, adding those considerations and hopefully making them be binding. You know, from a, from a modeling perspective, if, if I put a constraint, 
that that is easy to meet, then that means that I'm not going to really make a material change. And we do know that there are folks out there that are indeed affected by distribution system operation or power system operation in general in many ways. And so we want to ensure that those folks have a, an experience that is comparable or at least achieves a certain minimum level. So some people watching the show may think that we're in the weeds and we've been in the weeds for the last few minutes. Um, but I wanted I want you to drill down a little further, if you could, and think about like, since your dissertation and you're building models back um, as part of your academic uh, part of your career, and, and then since, what are the most challenging, like, like nitty gritty problem? What, what's the toughest problem that you've, uh, you feel like you've been uh, confronted with in, in system planning or? Well, there's probably many, but I'm going to choose one that is actually the one that I tackled in my dissertation, which is in a world where you have the opportunity to deploy generation and storage at the customer's premises at costs that are quite reasonable. What should you do? Should you deploy those at a massive scale sponsored by a entity like a utility? Or should you still be building your grid, your distribution grid and your transmission grid and build utility scale resources and use those as we have traditionally done? And, you know, that question wasn't really, didn't have, they had a clear answer maybe 10 or 15 years ago where the cost of solar and the cost of batteries was very high. But now the question actually makes a lot of sense. And it's actually a question that's starting to bug a lot of regulators and planners in general, because it's not evident at all that the solution continues to be to put money on the grid and the infrastructure that is on the you know, non-customer side of the power system. And the idea of the customer itself supplying large chunks of their needs locally becomes a, an economic reality and a technical reality. Would the answer to that question depend upon how the distributed resources, like distributed batteries, are controlled and dispatched? So, so if, the, if every customer is controlling their own battery, that's one thing. If there's some central or um, you know, organized, coordinated control of the batteries, that seems like it would be another. And would the answer depend on that? Probably, in the sense that as a customer, you can just go off grid and operate your own system, but your reliability experience is going to be pretty bad. There's a high chance that there is many times of the, even during a, a regular day, where you won't have enough to meet your own needs unless you oversight your system at levels where the economic part of the discussion falls off and it's not economic anymore. And so what I did for my dissertation was answer this question from the perspective of an emerging economy. My case study was in Kenya, where a lot of the central infrastructure doesn't exist. The distribution system is nascent, is, is emerging. The transmission lines are there, but there are a few of them. And then the generation side of things has a certain level, but there's a large deficit when you compare what generation should be versus what demand looks to be. And what I frame is like, okay, would it make sense for a lot of these populations that doesn't have access to electricity to provide them with some sort of local electricity, either an individual or maybe a microgrid type of electricity, rather than building or maybe waiting until that load builds up to, be, to then build decentralized. And I was sort of stunning, and I built a model for this, that it was able to make centralized decisions on investment and operation, but it made them all across the power system domains, from the behind the meter to the distribution, transmission, and generation. So the model was able to make this trade-off very explicitly. And what it came out was that for a large majority of customers that were low consumers, it made a lot more sense to have a local source of generation that met most of their peak and sort of barring demands and have the central grid just provide a thin layer of baseload. So the distribution system that was built was very, very efficient. It was used pretty much all the time. And everything that departed from that base was served by local power, mostly because these customers that are very poor, they have what's called a very low load factor. They tend to 
cluster order consumption in just a few hours of the day when they run their TV or when they run, you know, they put their lights on. And so that made a lot of sense to me. And actually what has happened in Kenya since this dissertation was, you know, done maybe uh, five or seven years ago is that they went through the traditional way. They expanded their central system substantially and lo and behold, demand didn't show up. And so the system is vastly underutilized and there is just now a lot of pressure, financial pressure, as they're investing a lot of money on these systems to get the customers to sort of increase. But, you know, you can't magically pull people out of poverty just by providing them electricity. You need a whole lot more, you know, there's a whole lot more interventions to do that. And so it kind of proved that, uh, well, I don't know if it's proved, but I think there's some evidence then that these local resources that could have been much more targeted could have served and be a much better use of financial resources. When you translate this to the setting of, an, of a wealthy economy like the U.S., the decision remains quite similar in that there is aging infrastructure all across the grids, especially the grid segments, transmission and distribution, that's going to require a fair amount of investment soon. And the question is, shall we invest in those uh, and rehash and re-overhaul those, or shall we try to do something behind the meter, ways of managing our customers' load more smartly. And essentially, that's where the point that you're making, Bruce, comes along, is do customers need to give up control of, over their resources to do that? And the, the answer is that we had another paper that said yes. So when the customers make their own decisions, just based on rate structures, they typically make decisions that are not optimal for the entire system. They make decisions that are optimal for their pocket. But if you were able to pass the customers a signal that is much more reflective of the needs of the system on a real-time basis, then the customers align with what the system as a whole would make. So you have an alignment of the customer-level decision and the sort of, quote-unquote, social planner decision. What I'm getting is that the recipe for the future includes better coordination, better planning, and there's probably room for utility-scale resource investments, including transmission, but also uh, refinement of how um, distributed resources are deployed and price signals to get them the interest of people who only control those distributed resources to align with the broader objectives of the and economics of the grid. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, we should tap all of those resources. And the key question is how much you tap on each one and how early or late. We don't have a, yet a good answer to that. The other key question is what is the realistic assumption about how much a planner can control? Because customers, you know, they are you know, humans, they want to do certain things their own way. A lot of customers don't like to give up the control even of their HVAC, their air conditioning. They want to override if it's hot and the smart thermostat is forcing them to have a 78 degree setting. No, they want to bring it down to 73, just too hot for them. And, and they override and that produces, you know, if you have many customers making the same decision, that produces an entire problem upstream when you're relying on those smart thermostats to do their thing. So there is an aspect here of freedom or choice that it's that it's at the crux and it's I don't know how to solve it but it's it's very much at the core when you're talking about coordination you know in in the bulk power system that has been sold in that generators understand that they have to give up their control to the ISO and they're like okay I have this 200 million dollar asset and you're going to manage it for me and I, I give up. And, and we understood as many years ago that that was the only way to do it. Can we get there with customers and uh, so they can give up their control of their assets? I don't know. But we, we did it at least on one side of the equation. Maybe we'll get to a point where customers understand that at least with certain assets, everyone's much better off if you give up your chances of managing and that someone else can do a better job than you to managing your heat pump or your vehicle charging such that you meet your needs you have the levels of temperature you want in your home, you have your car charged the way you want it, and yet it's in a decision process that's optimal for everyone. It's kind of the dream.
up there. Yeah, that's a good dream. Well, it's been a really good yeah. conversation. I think we might want to have you back uh, yeah. to continue. Yeah. Yeah, th- thanks for being on the show, JP. Oh, of course. No, thanks for inviting me. I hope it was a good conversation. I, I didn't know what to expect. But yeah, I'll be happy to keep talking about this stuff. Look forward to uh, talking with you soon. Of course. Thanks so much for inviting me. Cheers. See yeah. Check out the show notes for visuals and links for more info on the topics discussed. You can find the Energy Nerd Show on social media pretty much everywhere at Energy Nerd Show or on our website at energynerdshow.com.